I'm Caleb Rowe, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast, don't you know? As you may be able to tell from my very witty introduction there, I have now relocated to Minnesota. I am in the Twin City area. During my first week here, I actually stayed quite a bit up north outside of the Twin Cities on some very nice property owned by relatives, my second cousins, Mark and Karen Shermer, who have been nothing but welcoming and loving and giving and I just cannot thank them enough for their hospitality. Like, oh my goodness, seriously, I, I, I cannot thank them enough for everything that they've done for me. Beyond just putting me up, my cousin Mark helped me to uh, find some contacts in the city. And they've just been bending over backwards to help me out. And I just cannot thank them enough. I'm just so, so grateful to them both. I gotta go ahead and just actually give a little plug. And I'll, I'll do so again at the end of the podcast to... Mark Shermer, he runs his own business called Mark's Country Market. You can go to www.markscountrymarket.com to find out more about him. I'm not sure that they would deliver or mail uh, any of their products to your area, but they have the best, most fresh cuts of meat, uh, and he also sells firewood. But uh, while I was staying with them, I did get the unique first-in-a-lifetime experience, and maybe once-in-a-lifetime, who knows, of slaughtering ten hogs and, you know, uh, skinning them and preparing them for market a little bit. So I got my, my hands dirty, both proverbially and literally, as it were, helping out there on the sort of farm like setup that they have on their nice big property in the Angora, Minnesota area. And while I was up there, I also had the chance to visit Net Lake, which is where my second uncle, technically, I always I called him Uncle Wally, Wally Olson was the pastor of the church there at Net Lake, which is a reservation for the Ojibwe Native American people. I got to visit up there with their current pastor, Kevin Land, and his lovely wife, Natasha, and they were very, very welcoming as well. The people up here are just great. I just, I love it. Honestly, sorry, Kansas, but Minnesota's got you beat in the hospitality department. really reminds me of home, reminds me of Kentucky, and just that kind of, um, the southern hospitality that I've experienced in Kentucky is rivaled by that of the people of uh, northern Minnesota. So, sorry, Kentucky. (laughs) Sorry about that. I love you, Bluegrass State. I love the Commonwealth always will. It's in my blood. So, anyhow, you can probably document the inevitable evolution of my dialect, of my accent, (laughs) living, living with family up here up north. People do talk a little bit differently, but... 
They're very, very warm, very, very welcoming, and very, very familiar to me, like I said, with the level of hospitality that I've experienced. Uh, I'm currently actually staying with a new friend, a great guy named Todd, who is with the uh, Northridge Fellowship Church in Rogers, Minnesota, and... He has very, very graciously opened his home to me, just without question. It reminds me of that passage in Scripture, I believe in Matthew, where it talks about, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. He just welcomed me into his home without knowing me very well. We met while I was visiting up there at Net Lake. That Sunday that I was visiting, he and I both played worship music for the church community that they have there on the reservation. So yeah, so thanks Todd and the entire uh, Northridge Rogers location team. Some very, very giving, very, very loving people. And I have to say that the Baptist denomination up north is very, very, very different from the Baptist denomination that I grew up with down south, the Southern Baptists. I don't want to trash talk the Southern Baptists at all. I just mean to say that their approach to ministry... And their kind, of, their whole just mindset are in a positive way quite different from the version of the Baptist Church that I am used to and was raised in. A little bit more on the history of my family in the northern Minnesota area. I know my dad did mention it a bit in episode number two in my interview with him. Uh, But to expand on that a little bit more, my Uncle Wally served as the pastor up there at the Net Lake Reservation, and my grandfather, Dick Rowe, served as doctor to the Ojibwe people, both at Net Lake and uh, a little bit further north across the border into Canada at Lac La Croix. So I have quite a bit of family roots up here. And it is just great to kind of retread the ground that they did. And I feel called to missions, to ministry, and I feel like this is just the most logical place to start. And also just, though I may be in the middle of reconstructing my personal spiritual beliefs, I absolutely am seeing synchronicity and what traditionally might be called the providence of God and God's oversight and God's kind of big picture plan in motion, just with the doors that have opened and the opportunities that have just presented themselves popping up seemingly out of nowhere. It's just been amazing. And of course, as I actually kind of discussed a little bit with Pastor Jay Baker, it can be hard at times to put your foot down and draw a line and even distinguish between the idea of God's providence and coincidences and, you know, and to even assert that something did happen because of a higher power. It can be a dangerous place when you start saying, God gave me this parking spot or God gave me all these, you know, these little insignificant things when obviously there's, you know, that old argument that uh, 
there are much more important things for a creator and sustainer of the universe to be concerned with. Uh, however, you know, I, I do still subscribe to the concept that God is in and around all things and is orchestrating every tiny little movement of everything in the universe and even just sustaining it, maybe even by thought. That our existence and our perception of it is sustained by the conscious effort of the source and ground of all being. Anyhow, so my Uncle Wally just was the picture of love. He just lived Christ. He ministered to the Ojibwe people, and he did so so selflessly and so lovingly and so non-intrusively. This is just kind of a perfect example of what I mean. My cousin Karen was telling me that Whenever my Uncle Wally would be driving home on the reservation at night, there was quite a bit of an alcohol problem in the community, and it would not be uncommon for him to come across a man on the side of the road who was drunk and, you know, kind of literally just in a ditch drunk. And he would stop the car, say, hey, do you need some help? Get him in the car, and then just drive them back home. And he, he wouldn't give them a lecture, he wouldn't slap them on the wrist, He would just love on them. And the way that my cousin Karen put it is he would meet people where they are. The church term would be minister to them or or serve them, love on them, and let the Holy Spirit, let the universe bring that person back to where they need to be without being forceful and without trying to be controlling and manipulative or anything like that. And that, to me, is is just a a great, great testament and something that I wish to mirror in my own life and my own interactions with people. I actually happen to have access to some audio recordings made by my Uncle Wally very fortuitously right before he passed away. And they just kind of relay some stories of his from his time up there at Net Lake. And so I would like to share with you all a clip of one of his stories right now. When we first went to Net Lake, I had the idea that a pastor prepares his sermons in the morning and spends the afternoon out visiting. So I tried to do that the first three weeks we were there. And I'd go to somebody's house and knock at the door and introduce myself, tell them that I was a new pastor. We were starting a Baptist church here. I'd ask them some questions and they'd just look at me. And finally, I'd answer my own question. And then I'd ask them another and they'd just look at me. So I'd answer that question. You know, it doesn't take long before you run out of questions and answers when you're the only one doing the talking. And so I'd uh, tell them when our services were, and I'd leave. House to house, that was happening. Nobody invited you in. You knocked on the door, and nobody said anything. So you pushed the door open and kind of come in and try to talk, and nothing was happening. I was getting so discouraged. At the end of the third week, I quit in the middle of an afternoon. I went back to the house really, really discouraged, not knowing if I even wanted to stay there. I noticed there was a softball game at the back of the school. They had a ball diamond there, and a bunch of guys were playing. So I headed over that way just to stand and watch. I didn't even want to think about ministry anymore. And while I was standing there watching, uh, somebody hollered, Hey, can you play third for us? We're missing somebody. So I went in and played third base, and man, it was fun. And the guys were laughing, joking, having a great time with each other. So after that, instead of going visiting like I thought a pastor should do, I'd go over and spend time playing ball. And Almost every day there'd be a ball game over there. 
One night we were playing ball over there when a bunch of ladies came along to uh, watch the game. And uh, that particular night they needed somebody to play catcher, so I was willing to play catcher. Not that I was very good at it, but I was having a lot of fun. Well, as you know, a catcher is supposed to bend over a long way and crouch down behind the plate. And I was wearing a pair of pants that were just a little bit too tight. And on one of the times that I crouched down, I felt the whole seam of my pants from the belt right to the crotch and the backside just rip open. And I grabbed back there and, man, the only thing that was still on me was my shorts. The backside was absolutely blown out of my pants. So when the inning ended, it was going to be my turn to bat. I walked over to the crowd of ladies who were standing as it would be by third base, and I bat left-handed, and I said, does anybody have a safety pin here? Well, one of the things we had seen when we first moved in that lake was that all of the ladies had safety pins pinned to their blouses if they were carrying babies or if they, you know, had little babies because they used them for diaper pins and for pinning the blankets on and for everything else. So every mother had safety pins pinned to her shirt. I went over. I had heard the people laughing, and I said, Will somebody give me a safety pin? It's my turn to bat. And they all covered up their chests and said, We don't have any. We don't have any. Nobody had a safety pin. So, okay. I went over, took the bat, turned around with my backside facing the whole crowd of ladies. And when I crouched over to take my batting stance, I could feel the wind blowing off Net Lake right up through that hole. They laughed and laughed and laughed. But nobody gave me a safety pin. So, yeah, that's one of my favorite stories that I have from my Uncle Wally about his time up there at Net Lake. And his stories never end with a big moral of the story or a big flashy ending or a grand message for you to take home and apply. And I feel like that is just kind of a perfect example of his approach to serving the Ojibwe people there at Netlake. And by the time that he left, he was actually officially inducted as a tribe member of the Ojibwe's. There's a ceremony, and even their community spiritual leader came down and lended his support and approval of my Uncle Wally being officially inducted into the tribe, which is a very, very rare and highly prestigious honor that I can't emphasize how rare that is and how much it shows the acceptance of the local Native people. So I have some pretty big boots to fill being up here, but in my brief visit to Net Lake... It was just so apparent and it was emphasized to me how much my family has kind of blazed the trail in relations with the Native people because, you know, culturally, there's so many differences between white people culture and the Native Ojibwe culture. But my Uncle Wally kind of broke down some barriers that Kevin Land, the current pastor up there, told me. He and his wife would not be able to even have their ministry. They wouldn't even be able to be in the position in the community or even in the physical position there up at Net Lake if it were not for the trails blazed by my family. So I got kind of VIP status up here throwing my weight around, you know. Oh, no, I, but I did get a chance to play banjo in the Net Lake service. And like I mentioned, that's where I met Todd. And he also, like I said, has just been... Such a great blessing and such a great asset to have up here. And that the whole Northridge Church family, just their mindset and their approach to missions has just been a wonderful example. 
I am also connected with Revolution Church in the Minneapolis area. And I got to say, seeing Jay Baker speak live, finally seeing in person kind of behind the curtain and being there live, seeing him recording the podcast, primarily delivering his message, uh, you know, secondarily uh, recording the podcast, which they release every week. Total huge plug there. You got to check out Revolution Podcast. You got to check out his messages. It's so good, so good, so good. That's what initially even planted the seed in my head to come out here, along with the fact that my family has set such a precedent, showing the love of love, the love of God, the love of love with a capital L to people out here. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward so much to working with Jay And who knows, maybe I'll be able to put a bug in his ear and get him on an episode of this podcast, even for a brief interview or something like that. But he's a very, very, very busy man. In fact, as I'm recording this, I know he's on tour with the very talented comic Kristen Becker doing a tour called Loosen the Bible Belt, which is a very clever name and I think a very, very much needed message for the country right now. And you can go to loosenthebiblebelt.com to find out more information about that. I think that what they're doing is just such a great approach to doing what they're doing, which is trying to actively kind of tear down some of those negative barriers that are between kind of modern American culture at large and the Christian church. Jay is just such a perfect representation of what a pastor should be. So transparent, so honest. That is something that I strive for in my life. And he was just such a big influence on me. I can't emphasize that enough. I cannot encourage you enough to give in any way that you can to Revolution Church. Before you would even think about donating to me in this silly little podcast that I do, I encourage you to donate to Revolution Church online. You can do that pretty easily. You can go to revolutionchurch.com or to the Facebook and donate there. Uh, Anyhow, so today's episode, I'm going to cheat a little bit. This is pulled from an episode that I did at the very end of a podcast that I used to do with my brother Nate. So it was an unconventional episode. I was kind of grasping at straws in Nate's absence and did an interview on my own with Alex. And it was out of character for the show and just kind of out of place and would have fit much better under the pretense and format of this podcast. And I should have just made it an episode of this podcast to start with, but I did not have that thought until now. And so I'm going to pull that interview and use it, uh, kind of recycle it. You know what? Call it a cover song. Call it a cover episode. (laughs) A cover of myself interviewing Alex. I will point out real quickly that though it was recorded really recently, you may pick up on a very subtle difference in the way that I think about things and in the way that my spirituality has changed already. And I will say again that it is my hope for this podcast that it will document my own personal change in my worldview. And I I realize that I'm going through a transitional time So, putting my little ego trip aside, I suppose we can go ahead with our regularly scheduled programming and that recording with Alex. Here's my interview with Alex. Please enjoy. I'm here with 
with my brother Alex for an interview. Alex is the brother right below me, in between me and Nate. It's a lot of mental health issues under the family. Mine is mainly depression. Uh, luckily, when I was young and I first started facing my depression, I found a way to cope with it relatively early in life. Alex, do you have any uh, mental health issues that you want to talk about? Yeah, I guess in addition to the depression that you mentioned, I also face anxiety and insomnia, mm -hmm. which is really screwed with my sleep cycle a lot of the times. But, mm. yeah. And how do you deal with those? There have been lots of different things. Oddly enough, I, a lot of times I change where I sleep on a regular basis. Hmm. A lot of people feel uncomfortable with like sleeping in hotels or sleeping outside of their own bed. But for me, honestly, I feel better when I sleep in different places, which is why sometimes I'm on the couch or I'm on the floor in my bed or oh, really? wherever else, yeah. I didn't know that, huh? That's really interesting. Yeah. Are you comfortable talking about your OCD, too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have mentioned that for sure. That's such a broad, broad thing. That yeah, it's really complicated, to, isn't it? Yeah, it's super hard to pin down. And it also changes a whole lot. Or like how when I was little, I, I grew out of this, I would like average words together. Mm. So I would assign if A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, etc., etc., when I looked at a word, I would add together the values of those numbers and then average them together and oh stuff. Oh my gosh, wow. Some quick mental math, so that was never a huge issue, I guess. So you're obviously really, really good at math then. Yeah, but a uh, persistent thing has been like even numbers, especially powers of two. Prime numbers are the worst. All these really weird specific things that come and go. It's yeah. interesting because prime numbers seem to be like so essential like in the universe. They seem to pop up all over the place. Mm -hmm. But then to you, it's like an annoyance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Before you found the medication that works for you, would you say that you were held back by your mental illnesses? Yeah, I suppose. And like most things for most people, it, you know, it comes and it goes mm. some months better or worse than others. Because mm -hmm. I know when I first came out here, you were, you know, a lot of times not very sociable and stuff like that. But now mm. you're literally the president yeah. of your college. Uh huh. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I guess that's interesting because I always really, really, really hated school. Although that's partially due just to the different aspects of K-12 versus college. Mm -hmm. And something that I always hated about school was like, even with field trips, I never liked field trips, partially because I hated being treated in an environment where I was really constrained, where we had set limits about when we ate lunch and which exhibit we were going to next. And we all had to stick together and everything. And so I don't necessarily know if it's something I grew out of or if it's the change of the environment. Okay. Because I feel like in college you have so much more freedom and all of that. Even so, I didn't really experience the same level of going out and being social for like the first couple semesters mm. until I just like stumbled across the student senate, the government there. Mm. And then from that, I, I became involved in a lot of clubs and stuff just from the people I knew there. Cool. And so that changed a lot, yeah. So when you joined the Senate, did you have like any sort of title at all? No. <laughs> so then how did, you, how did you rise up to president? Well, first, I became, after one semester, an officer, which are one of the, the five higher-ups called the executive board. I ran for vice president as well as a really complicated title no one knows the meaning of called parliamentarian. <laughs> okay. I lost vice president. Sounds very British. Yeah. <laughs> I lost vice president. President, but I became a parliamentarian. And then two semesters after that, during the next elections, I went for president and I got that. Cool. Yeah. So you were voted in? Mm -hmm. Were you voted by the uh, student body? Yeah, yeah, that's who it is. Okay, cool. 
before you were president, isn't it true that you were invited like to really important board meetings and stuff like that? Only by circumstance, because like for example, the incumbent president he went on some academic trip or something, mm-hmm. and he didn't have a replacement, so he asked me to go to like what's called the foundation board mm-hmm. meeting in his place because he gets invited to those. Yeah, and the foundation board's like a bunch of old guys, pretty much yeah, mostly old white guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, who have a lot of money and have mm-hmm. a lot of influence over the school. Yeah, yeah. I know that one of them is a banker who is the head of like a, a chain of banks around here in Johnson okay, County. Cool. Johnson County's rich enough as it is. To be a banker of multiple chains in Johnson County is really extremely <laughs> rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I remember you saying after that meeting that they were looking to you for input. Uh, it was like kind of validating. Mainly just because as much as they try, it's difficult in that position to always see the alternate perspective between the students. Mm. For the same reason, I didn't try to be too outspoken because I know that they obviously have been around a lot longer than I have. Right. But at the same time, it's been so many decades since they were a student that they kind of want to see how a student feels about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, how much it means what a building is named so we have some generic buildings like geb and the clb which is the general education building and then the classroom laboratory building Uh but then there are some other ones that are named after specific people and so so, like named after function versus named after the person who paid for it yeah like the carlson center for example and i told them that with the carlson center i associate that with theater because there's a lot of theater stuff going on there Mm -hmm. not exclusively because i like had a japanese history class there but i really don't associate anything with a generic name versus a name that's given after someone okay and so i kind of gave that input because the function of the meeting was deciding if they were going to accept a donation in exchange for naming a building after someone i see okay so do you think that the motivation of the donors is for the students to associate the building with them as a person no I, I don't think so. No. Without going into too many private details about, like, donors yeah. or okay, whatever. Yeah, okay, sure, sure, yeah. The reason that they were having a meeting was because the donor had passed and the donation was in his will. Okay. And the amount that he donated was typically not enough to get a naming, but his heirs insisted that they have a name uh, after it. Okay. The president told me that a lot of times these are more like business transactions rather than acts of philanthropy mm. because they always expect something in return for the money that they're giving. It's not just like, here you go. Oh, gee, thanks. By the way, we're going to name this building. Uh It's very technical, and the terms of the two sides are very precise. So would they go as far as to be like, expect a student to recognize them and be like, oh, you're the guy who donated to the building or whatever? Maybe not necessarily, but for one of the most prestigious buildings that we have on the campus, they have just a small section on the first floor about the family who donated Uh it and stuff like that. Like a plaque or something? Yeah, no, it's actually on. Um, they have a little TV with like almost like a slideshow <laughs> thingy that goes on and talks a, about that. A brag slideshow sort of thing. I mean, the dudes gave $13 million. It's not unreasonable. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. To expect that. makes sense, yeah. That. Yeah. They wanted the respect that they deserved, kind of, for the family, I mean, would you say? Or? Yeah, I guess so, because it's not any small amount of money. Right. You know? Uh huh. That makes sense. What decisions do you have to make as the president? I think a lot of. People in Senate, when we have our standard meetings, the president's functions are really unique because they exist outside of the typical Senate meetings because I get invited to the different meetings like with the Board of Trustees and I make a speech or to the foundation board that I mentioned before and all these other things that the rest of student government don't really see exactly. Uh 
and so, so yeah, then, there's a lot outside that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. So you're kind of like a mediator between... Yeah, the, that's a good word. Okay, cool. So the president is like the mediator between the student council and the donors and the... What was the other term that you used? The board of... Yeah, the board of the trustees. I wouldn't necessarily say a mediator between the donors, just a voice. Like the voice of the students. Yeah, yeah. You went from being so antisocial to the point to where they trust you enough to represent the entire student body and the whole school. Uh, To me, that's like super impressive. Yeah, I guess that's true. Sure. I don't know. Like, I still don't enjoy socializing for the sake of socializing. Mm, Okay, okay. Like, just hanging out with people or learning about their lives for the sake of doing so. Okay, okay. Which kind of sounds like a bad thing, but that's the way it is, so... Which is how your brain works. Lie about it, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone acts diplomatic towards other people, like, no one's ever truly expressing exactly how they feel about someone. Okay. But I feel like I do that especially strongly a lot of times, where I don't really care about the people or what they're saying, but... (sighs) Uh Uh-huh. That's good, though. You do a pretty good job at pretending like I care. So you, you, you put on the filter that you're expected to, or you don't? I, I do, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I just feel that sometimes it's especially strong. Yeah. So as far as, um, like, with the OCD and the even and odd numbers and stuff mm-hmm. like that, does that ever get in the way of your life, like, practically, as far as... Like, uh, I know whenever we watch TV together, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have it on an even number and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Are there any other ways that it affects your life? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm really good at holding it in in mm. public spaces, okay. mostly mm. when I'm alone. Or, like, I, I mentioned evening words, if that makes sense right, right, earlier. Right. Or, or averaging. But when I did that, sometimes I'd be having a conversation with someone, and I'd be doing that at the same time. And so they didn't really realize that I was doing that, or I had OCD mm-hmm, until mm-hmm. after the fact. Would that get in the way of you taking in everything they were saying? Not necessarily, no. That's really impressive. One of the reasons I don't like taking notes, for example, at school, Uh is because it distracts me a lot. And so I actually don't take in as much, partly because of if I'm using like a keyboard or whatever, I kind of have some really random compulsions, which would take way too long to get involved with. But it's What's the most more distracting. One, would you say if I hit if you don't mind. enter one time, you know, like oh, I see. break yeah. space one time, that it would be twice, and then hit backspace once, then hit enter two more times and backspace once more, so that every time I've hit it, it's even. But I'm still able to maintain a page break. Oh man, I can't imagine being inside of that head. Yeah, that's crazy, dude. Mm. But then you're so successful still at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So obviously you and I have found ways to be successful and to function in society with our mental, you know, handicaps or disabilities or whatever the correct way to say it is. Do you feel like it's possible for anybody? Like, to me, seeing how far you've come is like super duper encouraging. And I feel like anybody else in that position could probably be just as functional. Do you feel like that's true? I really have no idea, because the only life I've experienced is the one inside my own head. Right, right. And I'm uncomfortable with making super great pronouncements about other yeah, people yeah, yeah. without really understanding their own head. But That's really respectable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, like, I probably shouldn't even say what I said. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll get into my depression more later, because that has to do with something else we're going to talk about. Actually, yeah, we can talk about that now. Yeah, so with my depression, I don't know if it was caused by or if it was overly pronounced by the fundamentalism that we were raised in, because as the listeners of the podcast know, 
Our family was raised very, very fundamentalist Christian, very rule-based, very performance-based kind of sort Mm -hmm. of thing. And so I know for me, that just made my depression worse because the lessons that I was being taught, what I got from those lessons, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but what I got from those teachings was that man is absolutely evil. We're just born into being evil. And so... Obviously, as a person who is clinically depressed, that made me feel just awful about myself. Hmm. Did you feel like you were getting the same message? Mm, Honestly, no. Uh, Really? The way I saw it was almost like an inverse, where I thought that everyone, because we lived in a community where everyone was the same denomination of the same religion, and we all went to the same church and everything, I sort of saw the outside as the ones who were evil. The people who weren't like us. Oh, okay. I guess, mm. probably because of so little exposure mm-hmm. to anything like that. Yeah. That was kind of my mindset right. as a child. And when was it that you stopped buying into the whole fundamentalism Christianity mm, thing? I don't know. We I, we moved when I was 14, um, probably a couple of years after that. Okay. Yeah. So when you were a teenager? Yeah. And would you say that was like a drastic, like, all of a sudden you realized it? No, no, um, because I was doing, like, the online schooling for a couple years. I also had shingles for 18 months, Yeah, you know, and so that gave me a lot of time on my own, and I guess during that time it was just a slow shift. So you were isolated because of the shingles, Mm -hmm. and that gave you the opportunity to really think about things in a process, and obviously you're an extremely intelligent person, and so having that alone time made you realize that a lot of the stuff that you were taught and therefore believed didn't exactly add up. Right, yeah. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, some of the messages that I got, and maybe it's just the depression for me, going back to the whole man is evil thing, I got the message that, like, God hated me, essentially. And I internalized that a lot. When I took the idea that man is evil and applied that, for me that meant I'm evil So I have to punish myself. I have to cut myself and hurt myself. And so I got into the habit of cutting. And at one point I was very, very suicidal. And when I was a teenager in high school, I was talking to friends who were not Christians. And it made me realize that if I were to follow through with something like that, if I were to follow through with suicide, it would be the most cowardice thing that I could possibly do. It would hurt the family. It would hurt the people I love the most in the world way more than it would hurt myself. Mm. Another teaching that I got was Jesus is the only way for you to have any sort of pleasant afterlife. And the actual application of that is you have to be in a secret club. You have to know the secret password. And, like, what does that mean for people who lived before Jesus? Or what does that mean for people who've never even heard the name Jesus? To me, that doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. So those were the realizations that I was having that led up to me. You know, I still consider myself a Christian. But I absolutely reject some of the things that I was taught. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that didn't add up in your head that made you start to question whether or not fundamentalism really was the way to go? Yeah, okay. I guess a comparison similarly would be if you asked what happens to people in circumstances where they're never taught Christianity or whatever, mm-hmm. and the response would always be everyone at some point has the choice to accept Jesus, and it seemed like that was almost like a, a way out a trap door yeah the excuse like faith can move mountains mm. the mountains didn't move you didn't have enough faith yeah right right, right. like there's always 
the one <laughs> profound sounding response that when you think about it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I think another application of that would be like with healing mm-hmm. and like if someone, you know, is super duper sick, they have cancer and the whole church is praying for them and they still die. Then the only answer is that the church didn't have enough faith. Oh, yeah. Would you say that that's a a parallel? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that works. If you're just in a circumstance where you don't have family members because uh, you're either old age or whatever and you're on your own and you don't have people praying for you, does that put you at a disadvantage over other people who have a larger congregation? Right. And if you're simultaneously teaching that God is love, then why the hell would God put you in a situation like that? Yeah. Why would God put you in a situation where you're at such a disadvantage? Yeah. If that makes sense. And also, if you're teaching that God is loving, and that God is like a loving father, but also that that loving father will send you to hell unless you know the secret password to get into heaven, Mm -hmm. and you believe that hell is an eternal, never-ending torment, what type of loving father could possibly put their child in that position, no matter what they did? Yeah. Someone could do the worst thing in the world... I could not imagine a loving father putting their child through that. Even Hitler, who put <laughs> Jews in, in the gas chambers, at least they died. <laughs> yeah. you know, that sounds like a really bad thing to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I should word that differently. <laughs> yeah. But There's really no reason to not cease existing versus spending eternity in torment. There's really no reason to have someone spend eternity in hell versus having them cease to exist. Yeah. Other than the scare factor, I guess. Exactly. We haven't even mentioned this yet. What do you consider yourself as far as your worldview goes? Religiously speaking, an atheist. Yeah. Atheism, you know, I think it's absolutely essential. One of my favorite philosophers and theologians is uh, an atheist Christian. And that means that he's an atheist, but he follows the teachings of Jesus. Okay. All that we really have to go off of the teachings of Jesus is the Bible, which was, of course, translated and retranslated, and Mm -hmm. it was in a different culture and different time. Because it was written in a dead language, like English will one day will be a dead language. And if I were to say, pardon my French, but that was so fucking amazing, then... Someone goes back and looks at what I said, and they say, oh, fucking must be a positive term. It must be an adjective that, that's a good thing. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it'd be so easy to mistranslate. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good example, I think. Yeah. It almost reminds me of how in Japan, some of these school kids saw <laughs> Westerners in a photo giving the middle finger, <laughs> and they thought that it was cool. <laughs> and so all these elementary schoolers are like sitting with their middle fingers, like, like, like the peace sign almost, you know? Right, right. But they're like <laughs> with their middle fingers up. That's a really good comparison. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't, they thought it was like a cool hand. Right, right, right. And that kind of leads into the idea that, because I, I wanted to talk to you about Game of Thrones. Okay. And I should say this, this is a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. It's not just a spoiler alert for the listener, it's also for me, because I'm only, what, like on episode 6 of season 2 or something like that? Something, yeah. Yeah, I'm very early into the show. So, in the universe of Game of Thrones, each different culture has its own religion, and each of them asserts to be right, but the old gods and the new gods are both real, 
Mm. Sort of, like, the only people who hold to the new gods for the most part are the northerners. When you say hold to, do you mean follow or believe that they exist? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of complicated because I know that there's a lot of discrimination in some ways against them because they're like, oh, those guys who worship trees, Uh which is almost like saying that in ancient East Asia, they worship their ancestors, which they weren't exactly doing. It was more like a ceremony of honoring them. Uh But there's some of that confusion. A lot of times, like when the Northerners will say, yeah, I pray to the old gods and the new. And I don't know if that's necessarily a belief system or a conformity system Mm. or what it is. Okay. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Because you and I have been watching the show together, and you've been giving me a lot of insight into how the universe of Game of Thrones works. Mm -hmm. And I find it really interesting that, like with the new gods, the seven gods, Mm -hmm. how you pointed out that they're based off of actual people. Or presumably actual people who may have been like almost comparable to hercules like there might have been a guy named hercules Mm -hmm. who did an amazing thing and then words spread and were maybe exaggerated or whatever and so i mean that's that's how myths work almost so there might have been this dude called brand the builder who commissioned the building of the wall and oversaw it but to attribute (laughs) him to like parting the the sea almost Uh it's probably not so (laughs) right 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 and so there's some ambiguity on that yeah yeah but i think that's really really cool and insightful because i think it parallels with our religions in our universe you know like like you pointed out that if jesus and buddha and muhammad all sat down together they'd probably be best friends Uh i think that's really insightful Mm. because all religions that are founded sincerely that are based on love are teaching the same thing. It's essentially the golden rule. Even if you don't subscribe to any religion, you know, most people subscribe to the golden rule. Yeah, even if people aren't the best at following that rule, you're not going to come across someone who says, no, no, you don't treat others the way you want to be treated. Absolutely. Cool. Another aspect of Game of Thrones, with all the different cultures and different religions, you were explaining to me something that I didn't know, but that's still not a spoiler. Spoiler. There's a nation called Bravos, and could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, the city-state, and the way that it relates to what you were talking about was how there's a temple there that follows the many-faced god, is what they call him. And he started originally because these dudes who traveled the world and explored different cultures and religions, they started to realize that everyone was worshipping the same god, just in a different form, Mm. or with their own rituals. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, what they call him. And so in the temple, like, they have of the seven in westeros and then they have the lord of light shrine and they have all the different shrines for the way that people want to worship what they see as the same guy yeah and honestly that's how i see the world mm-hmm. that's how i see religion is that it's a cultural thing yeah for example christianity in america looks completely different from christianity in a tribal area or in an island culture mm-hmm. yeah and so you know it's called the same thing and maybe missionaries go over there and say oh you guys are just like us you're christians you believe yeah. the same thing as us but it looks and it's practiced completely differently yeah would you say that that relates to bravos i guess so it almost also reminds even though i haven't seen it, i really want to watch a book of mormon from trey parker oh, and matt stone yeah because it sort of replicates the same thing with the missionaries going over to Africa and being like, don't worry about your problems, just worship God. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's a lot easier to do in a first world nation uh-huh. than in the third world nation. 
I think that right now it seems like there's a movement going on in our generation in seeing God more as the universe. And no one can deny the existence of the universe. Mm. Oh, what is the word for that? What is the? I think there's a, a word there is for a that, word for but it. I have no idea. I can't recall. Probably in some P- ism. Uh, pantheism. <laughs> I think it's called pantheism. Is that the nature thing? Or maybe they're synonymous. Maybe. We should probably done our research on that. <laughs> but actually, there's a video about that that I was going to show you. Do you want to watch that now? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to cut the interview short and turn it into a two-part episode um, if you would like, you can go ahead and watch the video clip from YouTube called Rupert Sheldrake, The Science Delusion. It's a banned TED Talk that you can find on YouTube, and you can watch that in preparation for the episode if you'd like. Otherwise, you're just going to have to uh, tough it out and wait for next week. I appreciate Alex so much and his honesty and the way that he keeps me honest and that he calls me out on things that I need to be called out on. And I just felt that it was such a good episode, I didn't want to cut it up any more than I already had. And so I decided it would be best to just make it a two-parter. In addition to the regular music that we have playing, my own personal self-produced music, today's episode also does feature music by Daniel Williams from Borowick. So big thanks to Daniel Williams for providing the music, and you hear him singing under me right now. Um, Also, I want to plug MarksCountryMarket.com again. That's my cousin Mark up there in Angora, Minnesota. As always, you can support the podcast on patreon.com slash air of grievances. You can go to soundcloud.com slash air dash of dash grievances. I think that I've gotten that wrong in the past few episodes, but that is the actual URL. We are also on iTunes. You can also go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash air of grievances. Also, feel free to call and leave us a voicemail. You will be played on an episode. The number for the voicemail is 612-460-0364. It'll go straight to voicemail. You can leave any sort of message that you want, and I will play it on the episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Caleb Rowe, and this has been the Air of Grievances podcast. See you next time. How did I find you? This must be a dream. You're quiet, but you're not what you seem. Never the words, but the space in between. Tension and you bore the strain. All my ghosts, you know them by name. You see my flaws and you love me the same.